Randy has asked us to turn to 1 Kings chapter 11, and we are indeed going to be on 1 Kings. But we needed to make a change rather last minute that I hope will be helpful. I don't know until we try it. Uh, Years ago, our church worked its way through a book of the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles. It was about the kings of Judah the Jewish people surrounding Jerusalem. The book of 2 Chronicles only covers the kings of Judah, that is, the kings in the southern tribes of the Jewish people. But the kings of the northern tribes, technically called Israel, 2 Chronicles doesn't cover. And yet, whenever I read through the Bible, I find some of the passages in Kings among the most helpful, and yet I think they're probably among the most neglected in the Bible. There would be many Christians, I'd say, who read their Bibles continually, enjoy the Psalms, enjoy the Proverbs, perhaps like Genesis, and maybe they read through the New Testament frequently, but the kings of Israel are somehow intimidating to a lot of folks, maybe because a lot of their names all sound the same. I don't know. So today, I was going to start with um, launch into the first of those kings, once the nation of Judah and Israel split, which we will talk about if that doesn't ring a bell with you. But as I did it, I realized, well, we're talking about Solomon and some of the problems that he had and some of the causes of the nation splitting in two. And then I realized, well, if we talk about Solomon's problems, really we won't feel what that is like unless we really look at the first 10 chapters where it talks about the grandeur and the glory of Solomon and what a surprise it was that he had so many difficulties, and that he took such a left-hand turn in his life. With all that in mind, I kept, as I was studying chapter 11 this week, I kept looking back to chapters 1 to 10, and all the glory of the reign of King Solomon. And then I realized, my goodness, why don't we just spend one Sunday morning looking at that? Hence the change. Now, I'm aware that for some of you, perhaps, who are not familiar with the Bible. Maybe you haven't been a Christian for very long. Maybe you're still not a Christian, but you're interested in learning about Christianity and so forth. These names may not mean anything to you. Although most people have heard about Solomon, there are a lot of people who really don't know much about him. So today, may God give us the wisdom to compress 10 chapters into one sermon, leaving out, of course, one or two things along the way. And I hope it will be helpful. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I am not used to speaking on massive swaths of the Bible at the same time. I ask for grace in my weakness regarding this, grace for these people who hear. And Lord, I'm particularly aware of the array of ages in the room or the array of how long someone's been a Christian and how much they know about the Bible. Father, you have the ability... You have the ability to speak to everybody, wherever he or she is. Would you do that, please? In the name of Jesus, amen. So here's how we're going to do this. If you have read the Bible for a long time, you're aware that the entire Old Testament, the first half of the Bible, which is really more than half because it's bigger than the New Testament, the whole Old Testament was in order to prepare the world for the coming of of Jesus Christ, and of Christianity. And in doing so, one of the ways that the Old Testament does this is to record how God throughout history sent many prophets to predict 
that a great Messiah would come. All that is well and good and is fairly forthright. But God also prepared the world for the Messiah in a sort of a round-the-back way, a backdoor way. What he did was he established his nation, Israel, to reflect what he as God is like. And in that nation, he had prophets, because Jesus Christ would become a prophet. He had priests offering sacrifices, because Jesus Christ would one day offer himself as a sacrifice. And he had kings who would rule his people. And these three groups of people, prophets and priests and kings, were intended to be a picture of what the Messiah would eventually look like. Of course, you had bad prophets and you had bad priests and kings, but you had good ones as well. And the good ones reflected the Messiah accurately. The bad ones, they did a total injustice to it. And so we're looking now at King Solomon, who of all the kings in the Old Testament, along with his father, King David, were probably the best, at least at certain times of their life, in reflecting what the great Messiah would be as they shepherded their people Israel and protected God's people and and fed them and ruled them wisely. They were a picture of what Jesus would be like. We are going to look now at the chapters that talked about how Solomon did that so marvelously throughout a good portion of his life. And I thought a way to do it might be to take a verse from the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, that talks about Jesus Christ now ascended and up in heaven and ruling the world and coming again, and to take a verse that talks about his grandeur and his glory and see the way in which King Solomon of Israel, a thousand years before Jesus, reflected that grandeur and glory. The verse happens to come from the book of Revelation, chapter 5, verse 12. And it says that around the altar of God, there were people worshiping and prostrating themselves. And in a loud voice, they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And as they're worshiping the Lamb who was slain, they're, of course, talking about Jesus Christ, who was like the lambs of the Old Testament, who were sacrificed bloodily, even though they were innocent, in order that the sins of the people who brought those sacrifices would be atoned for. Let's take that accolade to Jesus Christ and see how Solomon reflects it, and in doing so, see the kind of Savior that God has offered to you in Jesus Christ, whether you have already made him your Savior or whether you're still thinking that issue through. Worthy is the Lamb to receive power, wealth, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and praise. Let's combine several of those under our headings and look into this. King Solomon, the third king of Israel, was a king of power and strength. And in this, when we read his story, we are meant to see Jesus in him and to love Jesus for it. You may recall that here's how the nation of Israel began that Solomon ruled over. A man named Jacob had 12 sons. Those 12 sons became the fathers of the 12 tribes of the people of Israel, the Jewish people. And after they had spent time in slavery in Egypt, they came up to the land and they became rulers of Canaan. They came to the land, I say, of Canaan. Now, Canaan was a wicked place 
It was so bad that God said, I am going to wipe these people off the face of the earth, and I'm going to give it to you, my people. And so the Israelites came, and under, king, under their leader, Joshua, they marched into the land, and they were allowed to take it over, and the land of Canaan became the land of Israel. But the land of Israel wasn't very organized. It was 12 different tribes, and they were sort of squabbling all the time like the American colonies did. They were fiercely independent. And on top of that, there were nations all around Israel, even from their infancy, that were hostile to them. To the north was Aram, A-R-A-M, sometimes called Syria. Aram and Syria, they're the same thing. Syria is the modern name for it. To the south, there was a country called Edom. These were inveterate foes of the Jewish people, made their lives difficult all the time. To the east, there was the land of Moab. And the Moabites certainly have their pages in Scripture for the way they made life difficult for God's people. And finally, on the west, there were the Philistines in Philistia. Actually, the Philistines were supposed to be um, taken over, and the Israelites were supposed to occupy their territory in green. But the Israelites had trouble conquering them. So that's why we have kept it as a different color. Now, there were other nations around, but we're using these four as illustrative of some of the ways in which God worked through his people in the time of Solomon. Now, when they first went into the land of Canaan and became Israel, they didn't have a king, they had prophets. But eventually they got a king, King Saul. He united the country for the first time in a way that had not been united before. And after King Saul came the great King David that almost everybody has heard about. King David was a godly man. He was devoted to Jehovah. And he was a great hero. He was a warrior. And he led the Israelites into battle. And he overcame all of these countries that we're talking about here. And he made them subject to Israel. That's why we've changed the color on the map to a light green. They're not part of Israel, but they are ruled by Israel, overseen by Israel. Israel has military outposts there. They are going to have to pay annual tribute to the Israelites. So what we read is that King David finally conquered the enemies of the Israelites all around. And then, as the warrior king was dying, he handed the keys of the kingdom to his son, Solomon. So Solomon, from his first day on the throne, ruled a kingdom that was at peace. There simply was nobody nipping at the phrase of the borders of this country. We read in 1 Kings 4, that Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms west of the Jordan River from Tipsa to Gaza. Interesting, isn't it? And had peace on all sides. You may recall, those of you who were old enough, during the presidential elections back in the early 80s, when Ronald Reagan was running for president. Ronald Reagan ran on a ticket that largely said, we're not being tough enough with the Soviet Union we're kowtowing to them. We're just talking and mamby pamming about, and unless we get tough, we're going to be in trouble. And so Reagan built up the military, and his, his motto as he ran for office was peace through strength. And indeed, that particular attack worked, and the Soviet Union collapsed, and, and things were good. Well, this is exactly what happened in Israel here. There was peace because of the strength of David. David had the strength he, of course, handed that strength to his son because Solomon had all the army under his control. But Solomon had the army in peacetime. Many of you may know that the word Solomon comes from the same word 
as the Hebrew word that is the only Hebrew word that, that most people know. Shalom. It means more than just hi or goodbye. It means peace. And it means more than just freedom from war. It means I'm wishing you peace. I'm wishing you security. I'm wishing you health and happiness and all good things. I'm wishing you shalom. Solomon was named after the word shalom. Because in his time, God was to give great peace. Now think about Jesus Christ as being reflected in this. Think about this. Think about the enemies that were conquered, that now Solomon ruled over thanks to his father David. It reminds one of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament that says this in chapter 113. It's contrasting mere angels, although they're higher than we are, with the Son of God in heaven, Jesus, infinitely greater. And it says, to which of the angels did God the Father ever say, quote, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? This is what God the Father did indeed, said to Jesus Christ. And as he ascended into heaven, Jesus now rules the world through his gospel. He is conquering areas of the world that have been in the domain of Satan. And he sometimes one by one, sometimes hundreds of people on a single day at a single place. He conquers. And at the end of time, he will come back and he will totally put his enemies down. You may recall in Revelation chapter 12, verse 5, there's a remarkable vision that the Apostle John has. It's a vision of a woman giving birth. Our purpose is not to go into the vision now, but the vision was meant to reflect spiritual realities. And he says, I saw in the vision this. There was a woman, and quote, she gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. It's, of course, a picture of Jesus Christ, who, when he returns, is going to wipe away every single act of oppression and misery and dictatorship and false imprisonment and unjust wars and killing and rape and murder. He's going to wipe it all clean with his powerful rod. This is what Solomon pictured, the peace that comes from strength. And when we read about him, we're supposed to think about Jesus. Now, secondly, Solomon was a ruler not only of peace, but the primary thing I think that Solomon was known for, even by people who have never picked up a Bible, is that he was a wise man. Have you ever heard anybody use the phrase, boy, that guy's as wise as Solomon? Well, this is where it comes from. It comes from the book of First Kings. The idea was this. Solomon became king at about age 20. Those of you who have juniors in college, would you want them to be the king of the country you lived in? Now, granted, people didn't live as long back then. And so at 20, you were older back then than you are now. But still, he was quite young and he knew it. Solomon had started building the temple of God because there was no permanent temple yet. He was a worshiper of Jehovah. He was fervent about it. And one day, Solomon, since the temple was not yet built, went to another town, the town of Gibeon, which was an ancient respected place in Israel, to offer sacrifices to God. He did this because, I think, he wanted to thank God again for giving him the throne of his father David. And we read that 
There at that great festival, doubtless where there were thousands and thousands of people amassed, it says that he offered burnt offerings, 1,000 of them. Now, it's easy to read that and to just quickly glaze over it. But you picture the amount of effort, money, work that it took to slay 1,000 cattle, sheep, and goats and prepare them in the prescribed way and burn them on the altar. This was an enormous offering to God that Solomon was offering. He was thankful to God. But God, I think, reading between the lines, and others think this too, was reading Solomon's mind. The fact that as Solomon was thanking God for making him king, his knees had to be shaking. What am I doing? Alfred Edersheim imagines him looking out over the multitudes that were gathered for this great festival of Jewish people who came from very far in each direction, north and south, and thinking to myself, my goodness, so many people to rule. Who am I? The Bible says that he ruled from the Euphrates River, far north into Syria, down all the way to the Gaza that you know something about if you're following the news these days. Solomon doubtless thought about God's promise to Abraham. Some thousand years earlier, when God had said to Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, Abraham, I will surely make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands in the sea. And so Solomon quakes. We read that that night God appeared to him in a dream. Solomon, I don't know how well he was sleeping, He knew that he had 12 tribes to oversee and they did not get along with each other very well. He knew that at this stage of life, he was not particularly wealthy to amass a huge army. He knew that as a young king, a false step could make people hate him and reject him and all would topple. And then Jehovah appears to him in a dream. And Jehovah gave a remarkable statement that has been followed by fairy tales about genies ever since. Ask me anything. God said, and I will give it to you. Now you think of all the things Solomon could have asked for. What would you say if God asked you that? My goodness, couldn't you think of a number of things you need? And you think, well, give me some time so I can think of really big things. Well, what Solomon did, he said, Jehovah, I am only a child. I don't know how to go out or come in by myself. I'm asking you for wisdom to lead this great people. And the Bible says that God was pleased that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, most people would have asked for a long life or for the death of their enemies or for riches. But you are asking for wisdom and discernment as you judge and overrule these people. Therefore, I will give you what you ask. I will give you a wise and discerning heart. I will make it so that no one in the past will ever have been as wise as you, and no one in the future will ever be. And in your lifetime, no king in all the world will be your equal. Moreover, since you have not asked for these other things, but for something good, I will give you these other things as well. I will give you riches and honor. And as I say, in your lifetime, no king will come nearly matching you. 
And so we read that Solomon returned back to Jerusalem, and there he offered fresh thanks with more sacrifices because he was so grateful to God. Solomon would go on to write later in the book of Proverbs, which he penned this from Proverbs chapter 3. Happy is the man who finds wisdom, the man who gains understanding, for she is more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. Now, the Bible immediately after this records an example of Solomon's wisdom. This is a story that if you have grown up in a church or have been a Christian for long enough to have read the Bible a lot, you have probably heard this story. And therefore, because you know how it ends, the punchline doesn't move us. I wish I had one of the little pieces of equipment that they have in the the, um, uh, movie is it men in black? Are these the guys who have a little gizmo that can make wave a wand and make you forget everything that you just thought about and erase your memory? Well, I wish I had that because to read this for the first time must be fascinating. Here is the account. As king in an eastern country, you are the Supreme Court. And if cases come to lower judges and they simply can't solve You are given audience with the king, and he is supposed to be wise enough to solve all problems. And so here they come into the massive courtroom, and there are two prostitutes. Now, prostitution, while it was frowned upon in Israel, it was never absolutely forbidden in the law of Moses. And so these two women stand there, and here's the tale. The first lady says, Your Honor, or Sir, or Your Majesty. This other lady and I live in the same house. One of us gave birth, and three days later, the others of us gave birth. We're basically mothers at the same time. The other lady at night rolled over in her bed and was so fast asleep, she did not realize that she was smothering her child, and the child died. But in the middle of the night then, she took her dead son, she put it in my bed, and took my live son and took it to her bed. And now I have a dead son, and I thought he was mine. But when the light of day shone upon his face, I realized he's not even mine. So I'm asking you, would you restore my son back to me? The other lady said, this never happened. It is not so. My son is the live one. Hers is the dead one. What would you do on the spot? There are no witnesses to come forth and testify. There is no DNA sampling. There is nothing. And you're expected, and you're 20-some years old, and every eye is on you thinking, I'm glad I'm not sitting on that throne right now. And Solomon says, and if you've never heard this, think about it. Bring me a sword. They bring him a sword. He tells his bodyguard, cut the baby in half. Give half to her and half to her. Immediately, one of the women break down and say, don't do that, sir. Don't kill him. Don't kill him. Give the baby to the other woman. The other prostitute says, nope, neither of us shall have it. Go ahead. If I can't have it, neither will have it. Solomon says, the first woman is the mother. To have a presence of mind like that, on the spot, under pressure, was one of the first examples the Bible gives of the enormous wisdom of Solomon, who is meant to reflect someone with a far greater wisdom than he has. My goodness. 
And so we see this wisdom of Solomon praised in the first 10 chapters of 1 Kings. For instance, he was so wise, not just in, in governance, but he was wise in sort of everyday things. He was wise in literature. How many politicians do you know that are spending their time in Congress and working on legislation or working on governance from the White House, and yet they're great students of literature because they have a lot of time on their hand? But Solomon was a student of literature. We read that Solomon composed 1,005 songs. Now, I don't know if these songs were put to music. If they were, I imagine he wrote both the lyrics and the music. But if they were only poems and they were using songs in in a figurative sense, we know of some of them, the entire book of Song of Songs in the Bible was written by Solomon, and even today by people who have no belief in the Christian God, or in the Jewish God for that matter, is taught in literature classes because it's the great classic literature of the world. We read that two of the Psalms in the Bible were written by Solomon. They are poetic at that. One of those, Psalm 72, is a psalm about a godly ruler. Isn't that interesting? We read that Solomon wrote three, sorry, he spoke 3,000 proverbs. And by that, they mean clever sayings, uh, aphorisms, little tips for living. Um, Pull one out of the air. Solomon said, like a gold ring in the snout of a pig is a beautiful woman who lacks discretion. Who thinks of stuff like that? But this kind of stuff came to his mind all the time. And people would immediately say, yeah, you've got it. I never thought to say it that way, but that's that's true. We read, as I say, that he gave 3,000 Proverbs, 915 of which are in the Bible, in the book of Proverbs that he wrote. Solomon was also amazing in the natural uh, sciences. He taught, we read, about animals, birds, reptiles, and fish. Who has time to study that? He's like Adam, who examines these people carefully. Uh, people, these well, animals are people too, some folks say. Uh, uh, he has time to examine them so carefully that he can lecture about them. And we read that people came from all over the world to hear this kind of stuff from Solomon. His proverbs, his acquaintance with literature, his explanations about nature and why animals act the way they do and whatnot. And he wasn't just, as I say, a zoologist, he was a biologist. He described plant life. We read that he described plant life, quote, from the massive cedars of Lebanon to the sprig of hyssop that grows out of the crack in the wall. Here's what he used to study. But as I say, all this is meant to reflect somebody far wiser than he. Do you remember the account in Matthew chapter 5 of Jesus Christ? Sorry, it's Matthew chapter 13. And it says that coming to his hometown... He began teaching the people in the synagogue, and they were amazed, and they said, quote, Where did this man get this wisdom? These were people who were not excited about him, and yet they had to admit that when he talked publicly, he just mesmerized the crowds because he was so intelligent and piercing in his thinking. Another time, the temple guards were sent by the authorities who wanted to arrest Jesus, and actually they wanted to kill him. They said, you go find him, you arrest him, and you bring him back here. So the guards are going to the outskirts of a huge crowd that is listening to Jesus, and they come back later empty-handed. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law say, well, where's Jesus? And the men said, well, no one 
ever spoke like that guy. Imagine that. Big, tough guys who were so mesmerized, they cannot go through with their work. This is how Jesus Christ was in Solomon Meriden. Thirdly, Solomon was a tremendously wealthy ruler. He was like a King Midas. As I said, David had conquered and brought peace, but Solomon used the peace in order to promote business and finance. It was fascinating. He, he thought to do things that people before him couldn't or didn't know to, and it gave him indescribable riches. And the main thing that he did was he grasped the strategic location where Israel was located on the map and the enormous commercial opportunities. I don't know if you know people who are entrepreneurial. Maybe you are. People who are entrepreneurial fascinate me. They think of ways to make money while they're chewing gum or, or, or sitting waiting for a bus. I, folks who do that and know how to pull it off are interesting to those of us who know nothing about how to do that. Well, this man was entrepreneurial. For instance, in the south of Israel, let me scratch that, not in Israel, to the south of Israel, way down at the bottom of Edom, which David had conquered and therefore Solomon ruled, there was a great deal of copper and iron, but far more than that. Because it, it met in a place that was the bottom of a many miles long canyon. And violent winds would come rushing down the canyon. These winds were strong and they were continuous. They were like a wind tunnel, violent. And so... In order to smelt iron and copper, which takes a great expense to make whole systems of bellows, instead, a system of flues and air channels was constructed that would just take the constant prevailing winds from the north and make it far cheaper to smelt copper, which combined with tin makes bronze. And bronze was the great metal that was so much a part of the great temple structures that Solomon This is the kind of thing that his mind worked on. Or you take the way his mind worked regarding trade routes. Solomon grasped that Israel controlled all the main trade routes of the day. You see on the map, Israel is a tiny little spot of white. And he realized that I'm at the transportation crossroads of the Near East. And so therefore... People who are bringing their wares from the south, from the north, from the east, from the west, they have to pass through here if they're going by land because of the configuration of the mountains and the deserts that made everything funnel onto a little spot like an hourglass, and Israel was the middle of the hourglass. And so what happened was this. Everything coming through could be taxed. And if it was not taxed, The Israelites could be the middleman. Solomon could say, no, 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 you don't go through here. I'll buy this from you and I'll sell it. Thank you. And then, of course, he would raise the price and sell it. And in doing so, he became enormously wealthy, as did his whole nation. Particularly Israel was gifted at the horse and chariot trade, which was the military nuclear weapons of the day. The top-level horses of the world were bought from Israel by eager buyers who had attained them because of where they were. Thus, this enormous wealth, and this enormous wealth make it so that they could profit from all the goods that are flowing across the Syrian desert, the Arabian desert, trade between the sophisticated nations of Greece and southern Arabia, 
and Mesopotamia and Egypt and Anatolia, which is up where Turkey is today. All this wealth allowed building projects beyond anybody's fathoming. It allowed a comfortable life at court. It allowed Solomon to maintain a formidable standing army and to construct massive fortress cities at the appropriate places. You may remember from a sermon recently, I said Jericho was eight acres wide. Um, Hatzor was, I believe, 120 acres. It's just massive what they did. So Solomon grasped the significance of the land trade from where he was. But he also, in his wisdom, grasped the significance of the sea, S-E-A trade, where he was. To the west was the Mediterranean Sea, and Solomon came right up to the coast, but Israel did not have a harbor, but just to the north of them on the coast was Phoenicia, and they had a wonderful harbor. And so Solomon became close friends with the ruler of Phoenicia, and together they sailed down to the Mediterranean, and they made a killing all across the Mediterranean points. Solomon had access now. Now, all points west, all the points of North Africa he could go to, to the south, because he had conquered Edom through his father and therefore came to the Gulf of Akba, he had access to the entire Red Sea, which goes all the way down there. And after going through the Red Sea, you immediately come out onto the Arabian Sea and the Indian Ocean. And all the ports of India and the great ports of far to the east in the exotic oriental lands, Solomon had access to that. And so he built ships. And with his Phoenician friends, every three years, those ships returned with massive amounts of gold, silver, ivory, apes, baboons, and exotic items of all kinds. Can you picture what that's like? Kids, let's go to the zoo. We're the only country in the world that has a zoo. And here you go. It is meant to show that he had so much money, he didn't know what to do with. He also got money from delegations around the world who came to hear his wisdom and would give him gifts. He also got money from tributes from the nations that his father David had conquered. So we read that in his lifetime, silver was of little value. It was as common as stones, the Bible says. And as far as gold, it was hardly measurable. Solomon had a throne of gold, It was entirely overlaid with gold, and it had six steps leading up to it. Most people envision it as semicircular steps around him. On either side of the dais, or dais, however you pronounce it, where his throne was, was a golden lion. Then on either end of each of the six steps were golden lions, 14 lions, so that when you go up to the king, you had a sense that you were talking to somebody rather important. We read that he had hung in his armory 500 gold shields on the walls, that all the goblets of his table were gold. Don't picture his table. Picture all the court, thousands of people over time, and all the other wealth. We read that that cedar wood, which came from far to the north, which was so expensive to to um, log and to transport, and just because of the magnitude of it, and there were slow growers, but they were great growers, it's the cedar was as common as fig trees. And horses and mules and weapons and spices, year after year, flowed into who he was and where they lived in Jerusalem. 
1,400 chariots, 12,000 horses he had. All this wealth, you almost tire of reading it, just like his accountants would be tired of keeping track of it. The idea was this. He is reflective of Jesus Christ, by whom God made the world and everything in it, and yet the world is a speck of dust in a hundred billion galaxies of the universe, and Jesus owns it all. And so we read that in the prophet Isaiah, speaking far into the future of the reign of the Messiah at the end of time, that regarding God's people, God says in Isaiah 60, your gates, that is the gates of Jerusalem, will always stand open. They will never be shut day or night so that men may bring you the wealth of the nations and their kings will be led in triumphal possession. These people were made to look at Solomon and think, my goodness, our forefathers Adam and Eve were told that God would one day crush the head of Satan and bruise the heel of the crusher. He's promised some kind of great leader to come rescue us. This great leader has got to be even greater than this great King Solomon. That's the idea that God wanted. And then we read in the book of Revelation that Jesus Christ was called worthy. And in this way also, Solomon reflected him. Solomon's character throughout much of his life mirrored that of Jesus Christ. 1 Kings 3.3 says, Solomon showed his love for Jehovah by walking in the statutes of his godly father, David. And Jesus Christ said, regarding his relationship to his father, I always do those things that please him. Solomon showed self-sacrifice in order to worship God. He offered, at one time, 22,000 cattle at his inauguration of the temple, 120,000 sheep and goats. Jesus Christ offered more than that. We read in Hebrews 10.5, when Christ came into the world, he said, animal sacrifice and offering you did not desire, O Lord, but a body you prepared me. Jesus Christ shed what Peter calls the precious blood of the Lamb of God, one drop of which is worth more than the entire universe. And Jesus sacrificed lavishly, selflessly, infinitely, abundantly for us. And that's what we read about Jesus and how Solomon reflected him. Finally, as Solomon showed his worth, he did so by his prayer when the temple was dedicated. The prayer of Solomon at the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings is considered by many people, I certainly would agree with this, is the most impressive prayer in the entire Old Testament. It's a whole chapter long, and it is a pouring out of the heart of praise to God and of humility to God and prayer from a leader for his people. And we read that Solomon just poured it out. And we read that after Solomon prayed, God, in response, made his cloud of glory that had followed the Israelites in the desert actually come into the temple in such power that the priests could not enter it. And the sacrifice that Solomon had laid on the altar Fire from heaven came down and consumed it. Picture being there in that worship service. It's amazing. And it was a time when Solomon's humility 
and fervency before God in his prayer was part of the whole mixture. And yet Jesus, in the upper room, in the presence of only 12 men, in John chapter 17, gave not just the most amazing prayer in the New Testament, but the most amazing prayer in the Bible. It's called the High Priestly Prayer of Jesus Christ. And of any sermon series I've ever preached, I found it the most challenging because every sentence is so rich you hardly know what to do with. And one of the sentences in that prayer that Jesus prayed was 17.5 of John, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. Jesus was worthy of glory. And Solomon, by God's grace, certainly not perfectly, but was, was given the grace through much of his life to live in a worthy manner. And so we close by saying this. Revelation says that Jesus Christ is worthy of honor and glory and praise. And my goodness, was that matched by Solomon to give us a little glimpse of it. You may recall in chapter 10 is the famous account of the queen of Sheba far to the south coming to see Solomon's wisdom and his, she said, it says that she saw down to the uniforms of the people in his court and the placing, placings at his table and the wealth of the buildings and the wisdom that flew from him and from his mind. And she said to the king, Sir, the report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true, but I didn't believe them until I saw them with my own eyes. Not even the half was told me. You have far exceeded everything I heard reported. How happy your people must be. Praise be to God who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. Here he receives praise from foreign kings because of what God has done in and through him. And yet in the book of Revelation, we hear what Solomon merely dimly mirrored. Revelation 5. Then I looked, says John, and I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000. They circled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and in a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb to receive power and wealth, wisdom and strength, honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Folks, when you read the life of Solomon, I do hope that you were made to think about Jesus Christ because it's made to cause you to want to close the book, fall on your face, and thank God that you have such a Savior. Our Father, we thank you that you have given us this remarkable book of First Kings, but we thank you that it is remarkable because of who is behind it, we praise you, Lord Jesus, that if we could see you now in your splendor, it'd burn our eyes out of our sockets, I imagine, the blazing glory. We have heard of people who have died and been resuscitated, and they said that the beauty they saw was impossible to describe. Lord, I imagine those who go to heaven and stay. It's absolutely impossible to describe. And so John was told not to write because he saw things that no man can utter. 
God, thank you that that is our future. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that it is our future because of the sacrifice you paid, which exceeds any amount of animals ever offered on earth. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that the riches that you have in heaven, you will share with us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that your worthy character has been given to us as a cloak of righteousness, which you bought for us on the cross. And that's why we can stand before God the Father on judgment days in white robes, pure and clean, with your worthiness. Lord Jesus, you are everything to us. We pray that we may live in a way that shows that. And now, God's people assembled here, may the grace of this very powerful Lord Jesus Christ be with each of you. Amen.